Welcome to the Public Morality. Who is Abraham Lincoln? Aside from being the nation's 16th president, guiding the country through our greatest crisis and issuing the executive order known as the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln remains in the minds of many an enigma. So much so that one can have the historical Lincoln of their choosing. We on the Public Morality are honored to engage this conversation with one of the foremost Lincoln scholars, Harold Holzer. Holzer's director of Hunter College's Roosevelt House of Public Policy Institute. Harold Holzer, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Oh, I think certain aspects of his life, his, his particularly his personal life, remain mysterious. Um, and I think we still debate some of the uh, outlines of Lincoln's career. But I think at his core, he still, to me, represents uh, what he was called right after his assassination, and that's the savior of American democracy. Uh, it, it, it stands to reason that when you're the subject of more than at least 15,000 books, so no one has written about, uh, about Lincoln. The only person I believe is Jesus, who's been written about more. Um, I would suspect that we probably will have more entries into the Lincoln sweepstakes and other people parsing out various aspects of his life. How do you see that? I know it to be true because I chair an organization called the Lincoln Forum, which is the uh, the place where the authors of new Lincoln books want to be. So, uh, you know, I've already heard from uh, uh, from uh, Joe Scarborough's people that there'll be a book in uh, 2023. Um, others are lining up people who one doesn't expect to write Lincoln books and not to self-promote, but I've just submitted my my most recent Lincoln book on Lincoln and immigration, and that'll be out about a year from now. So yes, they keep coming for sure. Um, um, they don't change the, the basics of the story, but they, they reinterpret uh, for our own time. And I'm happy that they keep coming. Just as far as um, self-promotion, sir, I just want you to know that the public morality is the bastion of self-promotion. So feel no sh <laughs> feel no shame whatsoever, please. Oh no, I feel right at home. <laughs> now. Um, you know, it, it's, it's really odd. There's, you know, uh, here we are in February, uh, which is also uh, Black History Month, which began as Negro History Week in the in the 1920s. And part of the reason it's in February is because historian Carter G. Woodson um, selected in part because it was uh, Lincoln's birthday along with Frederick Douglass's or in February. So even here in something we don't necessarily associate with Lincoln, here's Lincoln even having a hand in contemporary events such as Black History Month. Yeah, I mean, maybe less so than at the beginning. I The, the people who object to Black history being relegated to a month, and of course we're speaking at a time when Black history is suddenly controversial again for the first time in, in a generation because the governor of Florida says it's too political. But those who think that black history should not be relegated to a single month point out, and I think you're absolutely right that it was because of the kind of the contiguity of the Lincoln and Douglas birthdays, but they point out that black history is relegated to the shortest month and the darkest month of the year. 
and I, we have to do a little bit better about making black history part of American history all the time. Although obviously it's not working out in some states. I, I, I suspect that you and I could have a whole nother show just on the efficacy of black history being uh, involved into the larger American canon. So yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, his, historically now, I'm, think, I'm thinking about Lincoln in, in historically and political terms. Um, it, it seems that he was constantly underestimated, particularly by his, his adversaries. And even in hindsight, uh, do you see this still to be true in our collective efforts to unpack the Lincoln legacy, that there's an element of uh, underestimating just who and what he was? Well, it was certainly true in his time, although um, two Douglases were guilty of that in a way. Stephen Douglas, um, although to his credit, at least for his uh, awareness, when they when Lincoln won the nomination in 1858 to run for the U.S. Senate against Douglas, his uh, followers were pretty happy that an untested uh, guy, an un untested ungainly guy, was going to be the challenger. And Douglas is the one who said he is one of the toughest stump speakers in the country. That didn't stop him from running a, a you know a, a racist, brutal campaign against him and winning, but. Frederick Douglass did not know what to expect either. When he met Abraham Lincoln in the White House, in fact, he had excoriated Lincoln for the president's meeting with free black Americans in the White House in August of 1862, when Lincoln, for reasons that are still mysterious and enigmatic, which is how we began this discussion, told his visitors, um, would you consider a plan for voluntary colonization. And the, the good news about this meeting was that it was the first meeting a president of the United States ever had with a delegation of African-Americans. The bad news is that he basically told them once they were in to consider going and not just from the White House. Um, you know, it's possible Lincoln was doing that to, to get that story out so he could pave the way for the issuing of the emancipation uh, a month later without horrifying racist white Americans that uh, African-Americans were going to be part of American society from that moment forward. But whatever the motivations, it infuriated Douglas. He said Lincoln was using the language of slave catchers. Mr. Lincoln, don't you understand? Slaves did not cause this war. Slavery caused this war. But then they met. And Douglas, expecting Lincoln to be unfriendly and haughty, um, found him uh, to be, to treat him, as he said, one gentleman to another. And, um, and they began what um, my, my, my new friend, uh, Saladin Ambar, who I just met last night as we speak, has written about in his new book about interracial friendships, began Lincoln's first interracial friendship. Well, what, I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to that that moment. So I think that moment is is really important. I'm gonna come back to it. But but when when I was hearing you talk, I, I believe it was Todd Brewster's book Lincoln's Gamble, mm -hmm. and Todd talks about right after Lincoln's second inaugural, he was with a crowd of people, 
and uh, in the White House and Douglas walks in and Lincoln sort of stops and goes, there's my friend Frederick Douglas. I want to hear what he has to say about my speech. So that's quite an evolution from August of 1862 to what, March of 1865. It's an extraordinary evolution in Lincoln as well. And by the way, maybe not so much in Washington. I would love to agree with you that Douglas walked in. He practically broke in. He tried to come in through the door and they said, you can't come in. Then he went through a window and they accosted him on the other side of the window. And he said, please tell Mr. Lincoln that I'm here. I think he wants me to be here. He invited me to the inaugural. And there was sort of a commotion and Lincoln sees them from the East Room and says, there is my friend Douglas. That's exactly what he said. And he said that for effect. He was a black man entering the White House as a guest, not as a servant, not as a member of a delegation, but as a guest. And to add to the shock value of what he said, to the not so much evolutionary, but revolutionary nature of what Lincoln said is his next words were, Douglas, there's no one whose opinion I value more than yours. What did you think of my inaugural address? And Douglas said, Mr. Lincoln, I think it was a sacred effort. And then he, Douglas said, I can't keep you from your guests because he was on a receiving end. And uh, that was quite a moment in White House history, in American history, and in, and, in, and in Douglas's own story. First to have been barred from the White House and then to have been told that his view of the speech was the most important as far as Lincoln was concerned. Now, now uh, I was going to ask you this um, later in our conversation, but since you raised it, I want to I want to talk about it because it sort of gets to this enigmatic Lincoln. So you, you talked about you know the 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 black leaders which which met with Lincoln in the White House, which was um, revolutionary, if you would. Uh, 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 I don't know you have the I don't know the timing, but around that same time. So Lincoln says to them, you know, really, but for your race is why white men are killing themselves. Exactly. Uh, and then right around that same time, he responds to Horace Greeley's editorial and really puts emancipation in this really, really judicious um, sort of political construct. And all the while he's saying both of these things, the Emancipation Proclamation, at least the first draft, is in his drawer. Talk about that, because that seems like a very enigmatic moment to me. Well, it's, you know, um, Lincoln was said later, we cannot escape history. Um, but he let history escape him in these moments. He was a very, very good politician. And as I've argued in my book, Lincoln and the Power of the Press, he was also a master public relations strategist. So Horace Greeley hands him this gift. He writes an editorial saying, why you are, your administration has been strangely and disastrously remiss in not using black men in the Union Army to fight for our country and their, their freedom. Um, it's a gift because Lincoln uses it to, to write I would say arguably the most famous letter to the editor in American history, um, in which he says, my paramount object in this struggle is to save the union and not either to save or destroy slavery. If I could save the union by freeing the slaves, I would do it. If I could save the union by, free, by um, uh, not 
freeing slaves, I would do that if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, which is what he was going to do. I would do that. Um, and then he ends it by saying, this does not change my personal belief that all men everywhere should be free. And this, by the way, this was not just a letter to Greeley. In fact, Lincoln delivered it to another newspaper so that Greeley, who was always annoying to him, was scooped. It appeared in every paper in the country. Why did Lincoln write it? If, uh, as you say, Byron, he has the, he has this proclamation. Um, not only was it written, he had told his cabinet he was doing it in July, a, a month before the Greeley letter, and the cabinet implored him to wait until a Union victory could grease the way toward a successful launch of this radical new policy. But with the Greeley letter, he is telling, again, I think he's speaking exclusively to trepidatious white Americans. Whatever I do, I'm not doing it because I'm philanthropic, heaven forbid, to people of color. I'm doing it to save our country. And maybe ending slavery will help save our union, save democracy from insurrection. And I think that was the ploy. I think it was the ploy one month later with the with the uh, delegation of African-American leaders who came to the White House. It's just, it's a little harder to take when he, uh, when you think about Lincoln hurting the feelings of and offending uh, visitors face to face. But I think it was all part of a PR plan that ended up being masterful because Lincoln feared um, not only the war he was fighting against the Confederacy, but he feared that there would be a second front of Northern white Democrats who would begin a second insurrection if he dared to change the rationale for fighting the Civil War from just saving the Union to also saving the Union and destroying slavery. You know, we are, earlier we talked about just sort of an evolution on, on Lincoln's part. And it seems to me... Uh, there's a through line that we describe, we, we subscribe to many individuals, and, and that is evolution. You, you think of, you know, the evolution of Franklin Roosevelt, you think the evolution of Lyndon Johnson, you think the evolution of, say, Martin Luther King, these, these great people um, evolved. And so I'm thinking about the Lincoln in the first inaugural that appealed to the better angels of our nature, uh, and then you get the 63 Lincoln that, you know, government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. And then the 1865 Lincoln with malice toward none. Um, how do you see that evolutionary walk? Um, just those three speeches sort of being the touchstones. How do you see that, sir? Um, well, he believes reconciliation is possible when he talks about uh, the better angels of our nature. We must not be enemies. We must be friends. At Gettysburg, he is trying to make sense of this enormous sacrifice of so many hundreds of thousands of people by that point, even though it's only the midpoint in the Civil War in 1863, but sanctifying their sacrifice um, on this altar of democracy. And by 65, although he ends that speech with malice toward none, I think the key paragraph comes right before that. And I think Frederick Douglass, when he praised the speech, that was the part that he, that he uh, praised, not with malice toward none. 
um, in fact, called on right after Lincoln's death to say what he thought his finest words were. He recited this paragraph, this long, long paragraph by heart. And the basic uh, expression was, um, if every drop of blood drawn with a lash must be repaid by a, another drop of blood drawn with a sword, so it must be said as was said 3,000 years ago, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. In other words, Lincoln, for the first time in 65, says slavery was a sin, and it's a sin that we must bear north as well as south because we tolerate it. And um, it was an it was a, a you know a thumping, God-fearing, angry statement. And only after that had settled in the air did he say, "With malice toward none, with charity for all, let us bind up the nation's wounds." But, but Douglas heard that previous part loudest, and it resonated with him strongest. Well, and staying with the the, the, the second inaugural address, I, I know that um, you hold that while many uh, see it as a great speech, you also hold the second inaugural may be his most misunderstood speech. Could you say more about that, sir? Yeah, because I, for exactly the reason we were we were mentioning, it's. People interpret it as a friendly, you know, reaching out to former enemies and implying a soft peace, a soft reconstruction. And, you know, I think my own view is that while Lincoln wanted the Confederate states to return to, uh, to their normal relation to the Union, create state legislatures that were loyal, I think he had every intention of extending the elective franchise to African-Americans. He said as much a month after the inaugural address. John Wilkes Booth was in the audience, well, in the crowd, it was outdoors, when Lincoln said, it's time to extend the vote to African-Americans, um, even if we start with what he called the very intelligent and those who have served in the army. Sounds like means testing, but it was, you know, the first time an American president had ever mentioned black voting rights. And Booth was in the crowd and he turns to one of his um, co-conspirators and he says, that means Negro equality. And he doesn't use the word Negro. Right, right. That means Negro equality. That's the last speech he'll ever make. And three days later, he shoots him. Yeah, Not because by, he was God, crazy. by God, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll run him through. through. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think the the second inaugural is a, is he'll be pacific, he'll be friendly if they understand, if everyone comes to the table and understands the magnitude of the offense toward God that slavery represented and just commits, not just North, but North and South, not just Blacks, but Whites and Blacks, to ending it, putting it to an end. Uh, it didn't happen that way, but I think that's what he had in mind. Any any dispassionate reading of the Articles of Secession, I think, can lead one to conclude that um, the institution of slavery was the primary reason that the South seceded. Um, so for them, the war was about slavery. I think uh, and historian Barbara Fields writes very persuasively on this, that the slaves knew that any war about secession ultimately is a war about slavery. 
So in that context, it seems that Lincoln was sort of the last guest of honor to arrive to the party about what this war was about. And I'm wondering from you, sir, do you think Lincoln was deliberately late in his arrival? Um, yeah, I like the way you put it. Deliberately late, meaning he he knew why the party had started, right? Um, he just didn't want to, he didn't want to, he, he knew he couldn't lead on that issue. He knew he couldn't wage war on that issue. He couldn't blockade the South on the issue of abolition. Abolition was still a radical sentiment in 1861. It's hard to for us to countenance that today, but Lincoln could lead on on disloyalty, rebellion, insurrection. You know, it's just it's easier to understand now since January sixth um, of uh, twenty twenty one what insurrection looks like in all its it's all its ugliness, and he could rally the country on that. But as he said at the second inaugural in a part of the speech that we don't quote too often. Um, Slavery existed at the beginning, and all of us knew that somehow this was why there was a war. Um, so he knew it. Um, but you could argue more easily against secession than you could against slavery at the beginning of the war. Because it was, you know, we can look back now and say Lincoln should have issued the emancipation the first day he was in office, the first day after the firing on Fort Sumter. Because looking back in history, we knew he ultimately won that battle after so much loss of life and treasure. But in real time, when the, when the Southern states left the Union and then fired on Sumter, he had no idea how it was going to end or how long it would take or how much destruction would be required or how much loss of life would ensue. He was playing it day by day, week by week trying to lead uh, a divided North against a kind of united South. We forget that. Democrats uh, and Republicans were as divided in the North as they are today. Lincoln won the North about 56 to 44%, which would be a landslide today, but he still had to deal with the 44% who did not believe that slavery was worth fighting over. And, and many of that 44% were, were anti-war throughout the entire war. He had a, a big country to manage and um, it took a lot of finesse. And as we look back and maybe even nitpick historically on Lincoln's tardiness or seeming lack of enthusiasm for abolition, I think he, he, he probably could not have played it another way and held the North together, much less the Union. Upon his signing the, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, which which is a great story in and of itself, him actually signing the document, um, Lincoln reportedly stated, if my name ever goes into history, it will be for this act and my whole soul is in it. I don't know if that's quite, if those, that statement went together, but uh, you, you get the gist. But my question to you, sir, is might we hold that the proclamation in many ways mirrors sort of these enigmatic Lincoln qualities in that the document for what it's lauded for didn't do for what it was lauded for, but is nevertheless a seminal document in American history. Uh, your thoughts on this, sir? Well, I, I, I absolutely think it was a seminal document. It, it, you know, it did not herald a moment when enslaved people said 
wow, this is, we can leave now. Uh, because it, it was like the Declaration of Independence, which is why it was called the Second Declaration by so many. It was a aspirational and inspirational, but it had to be fought for to have its uh, aspirations completed. Um, and that required white troops, black troops, and enslaved people themselves who heroically came into Union lines um, even before the proclamation, but hugely after the proclamation um, to, to be affected. But I will grant absolutely that it's an enigmatic document in many ways, not because it only did it only applied to the states in rebellion, because legally, that's really all Lincoln could do. And he was still worried about Kentucky and Delaware and Maryland um, and their, their very flimsy loyalty to the Union. So I can make an argument that that's all he could do in that, in that regard. But here's a great piece of enigma, an enigma segment that most people don't recognize in the final proclamation. There is a section in the proclamation that says, I urge that there be no violence <laughs> by, by enslaved people toward their former masters as freedom comes to pass. And then the very next paragraph, it says, I authorize black people to arm themselves and fight for their freedom. Well, how do you do both? That's, that's pretty unusual. When that's you said... When you said that, sir, I started chuckling because I, I was going to say to you, the only thing missing from that statement is however, comma. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> By the way, Abraham Lincoln did not know how to use commas, just saying. Um, yeah, right. I think last best hope of earth, he writes last best comma hope of earth. Yeah. So commas are not his forte, for sure. <laughs> um, as you, you sort of alluded to earlier, I believe it was William Seward that convinced Lincoln to hold off on issuing the proclamation until there was a Northern victory uh, to avoid looking desperate. Yeah. Hence, um, Lincoln issues the proclamation after the battle, five days after the battle at, at Antietam. Was Antietam a victory in your view or was it a, a, a Pyrrhic victory? And, 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 and if it was, wouldn't that suggest that there was still a little desperation? in issuing the proclamation? Um, well, it was not a victory in the manner of Gettysburg. Um, it, was, um, it was kind of a draw, um, but enough so that, that, that Robert E. Lee moved the Army of Virginia south back toward Virginia, unpursued, I might add. Um, <laughs> but of course, Lee also abandoned Gettysburg after three days and remained unpursued. And Lincoln was furious about that too. I think once again, the press was the major, um, the major driver here. Um, and as you mentioned, it, it was five days. And you know, that can be viewed as, as prompt in one way, but it's five more days of suffering. Um, who knows how many people came under the lash or were killed or were raped in slavery in, in the five days. I mean, it's pretty guilt-inducing to think about that. But I think Lincoln wanted to see how the press played Antietam. Um, if, if the press had said, Lee invaded, you know, marauded through Maryland uh, and left, um, it was like a big giant raid, then I think it would have been a problem for him. 
But the press was the northern press, the ones who were situated with the Army of the Potomac were so ecstatic about the fact that after so many losses, we had stood our ground, the Union had stood its ground, that it, it became apparent in a day or two that it was a victory. And then it was a Sunday and Lincoln worked on the text and then he rode into town and told the cabinet and then he had it printed and, and there we were. Um, but uh, I think it was enough of a victory. It's a very long answer to your question. No, it's a, it's a great answer, sir. Remember that during, during the, the march into Maryland, Lee had, had enslaved free black people. Um, if anyone possibly still harbors the idea that Lee was a, a gentleman cavalier officer with a plumed hat and a kindly bearing um, think of the, the what he did. He did it in Pennsylvania a year later, or, uh, in, but there were more free blacks in Maryland, and they were scooped up and and sent into slavery during Lee's march. And it, it's a pretty horrendous aspect of it, the Antietam campaign that's seldom discussed. Now I know when discussing history, counterfactuals are frowned upon. That's right. So I'm going to ask you to, I'm not a counterfactual, sir. I'm going to ask you to speculate. And we're going to have a little fun here. Okay. Um, my, my favorite quote about George McClellan, I believe, comes from A.P. Hill, when he says, you know, there was a single item in our advantage, but it was an important one. McClellan brought superior forces to Sharpsburg, but he also brought himself. I just love that quote. <laughs> okay. So now, here's a speculation on your part, sir. Okay. Uh, speculate for a moment. It's September 1862. McClellan has Lee's battle plans for Antietam. Unless, and let's say he doesn't wait. Let's say he annihilates Lee's army. What would have become of the Emancipation Proclamation in that context? Well, that is a really interesting speculative question. Um, I'm glad you didn't say counterfactual. Thank you, sir. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm going with your lead because it's a legitimate speculation. Um, the answer can't be definitive, but it's, it's thought provoking because, and it goes to your point about, was it enough of a, of a victory? Uh, and, and I suggested it was, and it wasn't too much of a victory because if it's too much of a victory, yes, I, I think I see where you're going with this. Then George McClellan is king of the hill. And George McClellan wants the status quo antebellum. He is not interested in emancipation. He's told Lincoln that, um, that uh, his men will not fight to free black people. He's told his wife, you know, if Lincoln does this, I could just march to Washington and take over the government. So I shudder to think what Lincoln would have felt emboldened enough to do if if McClellan had annihilated the army, captured Robert E. Lee. Um, you know, Lincoln always said, um, when he met his cabinet again, you know, in the first cabinet meeting, Seward objected, others objected, and he put it off. Uh, a lot of people objected, by the way, about the congressional elections coming up. They said, if you issue this proclamation, you'll be, you'll be speaking of annihilation. And the Republicans did suffer a lot of they did worse in that election than they did in 2020, I promise. But um, when he got to the cabinet meeting in September after Antietam, 
he did not want to have a discussion with Seward or anybody else. So he tells the cabinet, when Lee marched into Maryland, I made a pact with God that if he should be driven back, we would issue the Emancipation Proclamation. And now that Lee has been driven back, notice no mention of McClellan. Now that Lee has been given back, uh, driven back, that pledge must be redeemed. So at this point, it's Lincoln and God. It's not Lincoln and McClellan. It's not Lincoln and the cabinet. And he has invoked uh, divine decision-making on the proclamation. Whether he could have done that with the same degree of confidence and authority had McClellan been by this time, you know, have getting a parade in Washington is a really, I don't think I've, you know, I've heard a lot of speculative questions and, and counterfactual questions in my day. No one's ever asked me that. And it's a really intriguing question. All right, please put that in your memoir, sir. I'm, I'm going to put it in the, in the <laughs> memoir, which I promise you there was almost no chance of, of its appearance, but I'm waiting for the demand to, to trickle up from memoirs. You know, one of the things, one of the areas as, as you talk about that piece of the second inaugural not being talked about much, I would offer another uh, part of history that's not discussed is that intervening three months between September 22nd, 1862 and January 1st, 1863 in the run-up to the proclamation becoming the, this executive order. Talk about that space. What was going on there with the public mood, with Lincoln politically? Talk about that if you will. Well, it's kind of a mess in many ways uh, because uh, in, um, in November, the Republican party does suffer uh, losses in the House of Representatives, not in the Senate, loses a, a really it was lost its outright majority in the House. Although there was enough coalition with non-affiliated members, pro-union members, that there would still be a working majority, but lost the outright majority in the House. The state of New York, my state, went from a Republican governor to a Democratic governor. Lincoln's home state legislature went Democratic. Uh, Lincoln's old seat in the House went Democratic. It was, it was a message. It was a wake-up call. Um, and so that might have chastened a weaker man on emancipation. And then in December, uh, the two things happened. Lincoln's great annual message, well, his State of the Union, we've just come through a, a pretty dramatic State of the Union message. Lincoln's great State of the Union message at least partly great, in which he says we cannot escape history. In giving freedom to the slave, we assure freedom to the free, honorable alike in what we free and what we, what we change and what we sustain. Now I've messed up the, and just paraphrased the end. But previous to those majestic words, he had offered a resolution to, uh, to generate um, compensated emancipation in the border states unaffected by the proclamation. And perhaps that effort, he said in the document, might last until 1900. It's the only time in Lincoln's canon of writing that he mentions the 20th century. I know it's not technically the 20th century until 1901, but it's close enough. It's close and enough. he also offers a constitutional amendment on colonization. So it's, he's still tortured by this issue of public opinion um, on, on the possibility of a 
mixed race society of the future. And then a couple of weeks later, the Battle of Fredericksburg occurs and it's a union disaster, a huge disaster, an embarrassment. The Union Army has to retreat in the December mud in Virginia and they're humiliated. And Lincoln is just accused of gross negligence and mismanagement. And that's just a few weeks before he's required to sign the proclamation or not because he's given a hundred days notice in September that the Southern state, the Confederate states need to return to the Union or he will issue the proclamation as a military order. And there are people on as late as New Year's morning, 1863, who are not quite sure that he will actually do it. There's lots of speculation that it won't be done. And indeed, he doesn't sign it for hours and hours and hours as, as black and white people gather in churches across the North and go through their hymn book in anticipation. I always picture finishing the hymn book and somebody says, well, we better start from the beginning again because we've not heard the word. <laughs> he tortured people at that, that last day. Well, we talk about the enigmatic Lincoln, but talk about that day because he, he, he read the speech and then he did some presidential duties. Talk about what Lincoln did during that time frame when he, on January 1st, 1860. Well, I think he didn't, you know, he, I think he was certain that he was going to sign it. As he used to tell people, I may be slow to act, but once I put my big foot forward, I never walk back. So he was going to sign it, but he read that uh, scroll and it was a parchment scroll um, written out by a professional stenographer, engrossed as they call it uh, today, but it means, you know, semi-calligraphy. And he read it very carefully because he knew it would be republished and he wanted it to be perfect. And he gets to the very end. And um, there's some, there's a, a template at the end of all proclamations that says something like, and to this document uh, written in the year of our Lord, I hereunto affix my name and set the seal of the president of the United States. And there was a transposed phrase. And he basically said, because there's no spell check and there's no redo, take it back. I'm not signing it this way. Wake the guy up. Wake up the professional engrosser. He may have had a, a heavy-duty New Year's Eve, uh, but he's got to get up and do this work again. So that was the original cause of the delay. Then he goes downstairs because on New Year's Day, he hosts really two New Year's Day receptions. The first one is this elegant affair for the diplomatic corps, both domestic and foreign and military officers and government officials. And he shakes hands with hundreds of people in that hour, hour and a half ceremony. But then the general public is allowed in and he shakes more hands, hundreds more hands, as well-wishers stream into the White House. We don't know whether anyone said, well, did you sign it yet? Because that would have been my question if I got to shake his hand. Um, so by now it's like two or three in the afternoon and he goes upstairs to his private office. Um, there is no ceremony, there's no photo opportunity. There are no journalists present. It's Lincoln, his private secretary, John Nicolay, 
Secretary of State Seward, who has to sign his name as well, and Seward's secretary, who happens to be his son, Frederick. Um, three of those people will be attacked on April 14th, 1865, interestingly. Nicolay is not attacked because he's on a, on a ship. <laughs> the, um, he's the one person to escape Booth and his co-conspirators. So they're all gathering. Lincoln picks up the pen. Well, he proofreads first. Fortunately, no mistakes this time. He picks up his pen and he puts it down. He picks it up and he puts it down. And for a moment, Nicolay, at the very least, wonders, is he not going to do it? After all this, is he just not going to do it? Finally, Lincoln looks up and says, I've been shaking hands all day and my hand is almost paralyzed. Um, and he's, as he says, the, the, the quote that you, you cited a few minutes ago, if my name ever goes into history, it will be for this act and my whole soul is in it. But if I, but all that handshaking is not calculated to help a man's chirography, which means penmanship. So he waited and he massaged his hand, waiting for the blood to flow again. And then he picked up his pen and then he wrote Abraham Lincoln. He said, I, I, want, I don't want my hand to quake because people will look at that signature in a hundred years. And if it's trembling, they will say he hesitated and my whole heart is in it. And so he waited. And then he signed in a, in a fine, firm hand. And he looked at the, his own handwriting and he said, that will do. But the irony of that is, not an enigma, but it's an irony that that document uh, on, its parch on its slick parchment has indeed faded so badly you can barely see the signature these days. Whereas the, um, the draft of the preliminary proclamation that New York State owns is in fabulous shape and you know just written on ordinary uh, uh, sheets of paper, rag paper that en endure much, much um, more strongly than parchment. You know, one of the things that really strikes me about the proclamation itself is uh, I, I was aware of the quote that you referenced earlier about that sort of contradictory, not sort of, that contradictory quote uh, that you quote that you uh, mentioned earlier. But aside from states in rebellion, um, I don't remember anything from that document as opposed to some of the speeches we referenced earlier. Talk about Lincoln's approach to crafting the proclamation and why it was written in language that's not so memorable, but very legalese, if you would. Yeah, it, well, I think he wanted a purely legalistic document that would stand the test of legal challenges that he anticipated would follow. Now, he's writing that all enslaved people are now henceforward and forever free. But as we've seen just in the change in administrations from Obama to Trump to Biden, that executive orders are issued and then they're countermanded with a new executive order. And then the, the next president countermands the countermand and restores the original because executive orders in a sense do not have permanent standing without legislation which is one of the reasons why Lincoln actually went beyond legislation and began working 
by late 1864 on a constitutional amendment that would end any possibility of judicial challenge to the proclamation. But he worried for a year and a half that the next president would, uh, would countermand the proclamation, which is why he wanted it to be on a firm legal ground. He wanted to um, have the document not apply even to the Confederate areas Confederate areas in the Confederate states that had been restored to Union control. So he exempted some parishes in Louisiana because he thought if he was inconsistent in the approach of its being a war measure, that it would not survive a judicial challenge. And that's all he was thinking about in 1863. And, you know, I worked uh, uh, for eight years and, um, and then a part of another year and, and had the privilege of knowing for, for 30 years, Mario Cuomo. And um, he used to say uh, that government leadership was done in poetry and prose, uh, that the prose was the real accomplishment, but that you had to also offer the poetry to accompany the prose. And he was a great Lincoln student uh, as well. And that's what Lincoln did also. He, the, the Gettysburg Address was influential, but it didn't change anything particularly. But the Emancipation Proclamation changed everything. And as you, you say, no one can quote a line from it. You know, it's interesting we were saying that historically about the poetry and the prose. I was thinking of a later moment in history where you have the rhetoric of uh, J JFK and the legislative prowess of LBJ. So you had poetry in one president, prose in another. That's what I was thinking when you, when you made that yeah. reference. Yeah. And you might also say uh, uh, that you had a poetry in Dr. King and prose in LBJ. Yes, uh, yes. And, and I, you know, it, it just reminds me again of the of primary campaign of uh, 20. I'm not as good on the 21st century as I am on the 19th. So 2008, I guess, when um, Bill Clinton was campaigning in South Carolina and he implied that too much credit is given to Dr. King and not enough to LBJ, which was not a very savvy thing to do. And um, Hillary lost South Carolina and lost the nomination. Yeah, I remember yeah. That that was a misuse yeah. of the poetry prose. Yeah, I took her point. I, I knew her point, but yet, like you oh, said, yeah. It just it 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 uh, as the, as the great rock group uh, Led Zeppelin got their name. It went over like a lead balloon. It just, it just <laughs> um, you know, we you have referenced this a number of times. I just want I really want to have you hone down on this point that you have Lincoln the politician. You have Lincoln the speechwriter. I think we would argue. We, I think we, I think you and I would agree the greatest speechwriter that America has ever produced. Um, but we don't talk about Lincoln the PR machine that's influencing the politician. Talk about how important that was to his objectives and, and how does that PR, or does that PR machine still influence what one might claim as Lincoln the enigma? Well, I, I absolutely agree that he, that I like the expression of PR machine. You know, he, he said that people who move public opinion are more successful than those who enact statutes. Um, uh, he said that during the Lincoln Douglas, he said it twice in different forms during the Lincoln Douglas debates, uh, uh, which, which is sort of a reverse riff on what we were just saying about poetry and prose. Uh, 
he kind of knew better, but he also knew that you had to bring the public along with any um, with anything you were doing. Um, he he had to bring the public along to fight secession, and because then you know there was a huge contingent that thought, let him go. Who needs that? Who needs that system and that? The horrors of slavery to be part of our country. Let's just let them go. The aforementioned Horace Greeley was one of them, not, not just once, but throughout the first year of the war, he advocated giving up and letting, letting the South go. But Lincoln was masterful, and he came of age in a period uh, not unlike ours in, the, in, in some aspects of the broadcast media, when every newspaper was affiliated with either the Republican or the Democratic Party. So news coverage was directed toward a political constituency to rally them, to quote, speak to the base, quote, you know, unquote, which is uh, part, certainly a factor in today's politics, uh, maybe a stain on today's politics. And he courted newspaper allies. He visited Republican newspapers whenever he traveled in Illinois. He made friends with editors all over the country when he was a national figure. And in Washington, he leaked out information to those editors who were his favorites of the moment. And uh, even though there were no press secretaries at the time, both of his private secretaries wrote sympathetic Lincoln stories for the newspapers. They covered Gettysburg. So he always had in, you know, he, the idea he who influences public opinion is more important. At least I know Lincoln thought it was equally because you can't have the latter without the And our final question, I'm going to delve into a uh, sports metaphor. Uh, one of the commonalities that's, that's always associated to great athletes is that great athletes have the ability to slow the game down. So they're playing a much slower game than what we see whether it's tennis or basketball or baseball, what have you. Might we offer something similar about Lincoln politically that, that in spite of being um, uh, underestimated, Lincoln politically could just slow everything down in a way that his contemporaries, adversaries, allies just could not. Your thoughts? You've given me a lot of stuff that I can purloin and use really interesting observation. And he did strike people as too slow moving. But in a way, he let the debate come to him. He let the issues come to him. Or as other presidents have said, he led from behind. Lincoln liked to be swept along and uh, not seem to be pushing a radical agenda. One of the most uh, disingenuous things he said in his presidency, and yet um, it's it's been been part of the legend. In fact, the great David Donald made it the epigraph of his book. Um, he he wrote a, a governor in a in a Union slave state wrote to him and said, "You know, I I don't know how I can continue with our loyalty to the Union. You're enlisting black men to." To, uh, to take up arms against white people. It's unfathomable. It's... And he wrote back and said, basically he said, couldn't be avoided. The, the white soldiers could not win the fight. We have to use every 
every means at our disposal to beat back this, this, this rebellion. And then he wrote, um, I never claim to have controlled events. Events have controlled me. Now, that, the reason I say that that's the most disingenuous thing he said is, is because he obviously controlled many things. If he had not advocated to push back against secession, the, the country would have been divided once and probably again in the future. If he had not insisted on making emancipation a part of the war goals uh, after a year and a half of failure, I don't know whether how long slavery would have existed. Would it have existed here as long as it did in South America, meaning the 1880s? I don't know. He was, he loved to portray himself as, as reactive, but that is the eternal enigma about Lincoln's leadership is that he was pro, a proactive leader in a, in a reactive suit. <laughs> Hal Holzer. Thank you so much, sir. It's been an honor to be in conversation with you. I thank you for joining us today on The Public Morality. It's really been a, a pleasure and an honor for me. I thank you. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Rally at their studios. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.